Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Our guest today is Lee Ozer, who is professor of English and Catholic studies at the College of the Holy Cross. His scholarly books include T.S. Eliot and American Poetry and The Ethics of Modernism, Moral Ideas in Yeats, Eliot, Joyce, Wolfe, and Beckett. He's a novelist, too. Uh, The books including Out of What Chaos, Oregon Confetti, and a new one, Old Enemies, which I have sitting on my bedside table. I'm going to start when I get back uh, uh, get back from New York City. Uh, our topic today, though, is not that one, but another new book entitled Christian Humanism in Shakespeare, a study in religion and literature. Welcome, Professor Ozer. Thank you very much for having me, Mr. Bauerlein. Now, you see, we, you know, here, here on this show, we, we go right into the book. Uh, uh, you see Shakespeare as, in fact, a, quote, Christian literary artist. Uh, before getting into that, let me ask how many of our Renaissance colleagues would even consider that judgment? Would, would ever even occur to them to make that judgment? Well, um I have to answer that on two levels, because I think it would occur to them, and I think they feel pressure about it. And there's been a lot of intelligent ink on the subject of um, Shakespeare and Christianity from scholars and critics of earlier generations and from folks outside uh, academia. So indeed, high-ranking professors are sensitive to this argument. Uh, but I think they have they sense that they have much to lose if they go down that road. They create too much of an opening for forces that are, in fact, hostile to the uh, secularizing progressive mindset of uh, higher education at the moment. And so there's a kind of closing of ranks. Uh, the the some of the better scholars, some people that I sincerely admire, want to have it both ways. I hesitate to name names because uh, these are people, some of whom I quite respect, who've done tremendous work. But if they uh, really come out in recognition of a Christian Shakespeare, whether Catholic or Protestant, in these highly politicized times, they will be seen as siding with the enemy. So they have too much to lose. Uh, uh, so, yes, I think, you know, to come back to the two levels, I, I, I think that they recognize that this is a serious case, but that their official position has to shut it down. 
you're the, the way you put it diplomatically, I, I, I think, and maybe might be probably accurately about uh, scholars such as Jeffrey Knapp and Stephen Greenblatt is that they don't, quote, do justice to the living force of Shakespeare's theological concerns. Is this because maybe they're just they recognize the the, the historical Christianity influence, but that these are secular people who are in a secular habitat, and it's just hard to hard to take the force seriously, not the presence of it, but just how strong it is. No, I I think that's exactly right. Is that we uh, we live and move in a world that is historically forgetful, and so um, just to say that Shakespeare was deeply read in the Bible is to distinguish him from even such fine scholars as the ones you, you, you mentioned. And I, I, I like Jeffrey Knapp and Stephen Greenblatt has a wonderful book um, called Hamlet in Purgatory. Uh, uh, and, and yet Shakespeare's biblical mind is, is, is uh, um, unmistakably foreign. He knew huge swaths of the Bible by heart he spent hmm. hours and hours devoted to personal reading. He works in a biblical milieu. And so to say that right now is to confront people with what they don't know. Hmm. Uh, but this has so much to do with the general amnesia of higher education with respect to our, our, our cultural inheritance. You refer to something in the book called Shakespearean mimesis, something peculiarly Shakespearean about the way he represents people and things. What, what, are, the, what are the traits of that? Well, of course, the, the biblical idea is that we're seeing the, the image of God in Christ. So that, that anchors uh, uh, the entire Christian literary tradition when we write about human beings, they, they partake in uh, the incarnate mystery of the God-man who is soulful and soulfully free and dignifies the human condition. So, um, you know, we have reason to gather a, a sense of who we are in the world to represent the reality that we inhabit. And this might sound to some minds as if we should just take it for granted, but the very idea of, of mimesis as the representation of human nature is now rather retrograde, retrograde. There is an anthropocentric idea in Christianity that, of course, connects uh, uh, Christian, the Christian religion to Shakespeare. Um, and beyond, beyond these biblical and theological ideas, you've got Shakespeare coming out of a really rich English tradition uh, that that rose up in the Middle Ages. You've got those uh, biblical plays, which are sometimes called the mystery plays or the Corpus Christi plays. And you have morality plays. Uh, the, a famous one is Every Man. I'm not sure that Shakespeare knew that one, but a lot of people have heard of that about the destiny of humankind. Yeah. Uh, um, so so the, the entire wonderful medieval tradition stages the cosmic drama of man in that liturgical sense that we still use in church and became man. Uh, so Shakespeare is steeped in that native tradition 
And then he was, I'm not sure that he ever sat down with a copy of the Poetics by Aristotle and read it cover to cover. I'm not sure that's the case, but I suspect that he heard a lot about it, that there was some very good conversation here and about, for instance, at the Mermaid Tavern in London, and that he gleaned from others what he needed to know about it, if in fact he did not sit down with the the Aristotelian text in the first place. And so what I'm saying about that is that there is a a natural uh, uh, dovetailing between the Christian thinking about representation, about man, and the Aristotelian notion of of, of human destiny, uh, and I think that is part of the Renaissance uh, project, the Renaissance story. So, on many levels, this question of mimesis, which puts human beings on a stage to behold as if their actions had some kind of significance, uh, is is very much part of Shakespeare. Hmm. You put Romeo and Juliet, which is the most popular high school play of Shakespeare's uh, these days. But you put Romeo and Juliet deeply within a Christian framework, even saying that the two characters' passion for one another should be understood within a framework, within a relation to Christ's passion itself. What, what, what? Uh, where do you, where do you, where do you get that in in the text or in the scenes of those two, or is that more just a contextual thing? Well, it's both. You know. Um... In the day, uh, in Shakespeare's time, one of the synonyms for acting was passionating. So you would go out and passionate. And of course, the 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 great understanding, to kind of come back to the mimesis idea, the great understanding of human nature from a Christian point of view is our, our endeavor to Im- imitate Christ, the imitatio Christi, and of course, then to participate in, in Christ's passion. Uh, so that that just recalls the mindset of people who were deeply Christian, far beyond our experience, who contemplated the last things uh, of heaven and hell and, and death and judgment, contemplated the last things perpetually, had judgment on their minds every day. So we think of passionating, yes, this is a deeply Christian culture, but I also think that even uh, we speak of the genres, we English professors speak of the genres of tragedy and comedy, but even there you've got important uh, uh, Christian precedents as well as classical precedents. And the the, the Christian precedents would be simply the, uh, the, the, the joy of Easter Sunday preceded by the tristia or the sad things of, of Good Friday. And I think, you know, symbolically, Shakespeare steers a course between the, uh, the, the Gaudium, the joy, and the Tristia, the sad things. And you can see him doing that in Romeo and Juliet. And in fact, there's been some pretty good textual history on the different versions of Romeo and Juliet, where we see him putting the emphasis now here and now there. So right at the heart of things, this question of, of, of passionating. Lee was was Shakespeare. What was Shakespeare's religion? What was it specifically? Well, I, I, I'm I'm sorry to let you down and to to disappoint any listeners. Um, it it seemed to me that I was not in a position to argue his his particular churchmanship. And there yeah. are people on both sides of this division whom I respect. Uh, John Cox, 
who uh, recently retired from, uh, I think it was Hope College, magnificent scholar, brilliant guy, makes a strong case for a Protestant uh, um, Shakespeare, and yet um, an, another wonderful man, deeply learned, Joseph Pierce, argues uh, strongly for a Catholic Shakespeare. Uh, and then you sit in, 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 a, in judgment and trying to figure out how to interpret the various conflicting data. Uh, so I, it seemed to me my best argument, and especially the one that might be most helpful right now, would just be to recognize Shakespeare's Christianity, that those of us who are Christian or those of, uh, uh, those among us who simply recognize the importance of, of the, the Christian inheritance, uh, and, and, and certainly many, non, many intelligent non-Christians see that, uh, that, that we cannot understand our culture with, with, without understanding Christianity. Um, so it just seemed to me at the moment when I'm writing this book, the best idea would say, all right, let's try to understand Christian humanism. Let's try to understand, for instance, the, the seminal impact of both Erasmus and Luther. You know, let's try to understand the place of Rome in his, in his thinking and the place of the Church of England in his thinking um, and just, you know, get at his way of life. And here I go to the, the 20th century philosopher Wittgenstein, as you know, and to say that his way of life and his way of talking was Christian, and it was. Uh, so I just think um, that's the point to go to right now at this moment, to really confront uh, my fellow professors, academicians, with the hard reality of who this guy was, and then maybe some other good things will come of that. We can start to grapple with the past in a more meaningful way rather than just disposing of it. You know, you get a lot of sh statements in Shakespeare that we would call nihilistic, cynical characters who, who, who are deeply uh, thoughtful of that frame, that, that point of view, like, like Edmund in King Lear and, and, and Macbeth, you know, his famous speech when he hears the death of his wife. How, how do we read those? I mean, you want to say... You want to say, no, Shakespeare must have felt something of those things, or maybe that's the genius of Shakespeare. He could evoke so deeply uh, beliefs, ideas, personalities that he did not share. Is that the issue? Well, I think there's some truth to that. Um, the, uh, the late great Gnostic humanist Harold Bloom points out on a kind of Nietzschean basis that or argues on a Nietzschean basis that Shakespeare reveled in the wickedness of Edmund or Richard III, that he had that capacity. So, you know, we, again, we literary types, we speak of negative capability. That goes back to John Keats's idea that you can just become something yeah. else, you know, you just sort of your, your own individuality disappears in the character or yeah. even in- so, a, Sometimes in, they, they call it Shakespearean irony right there yeah right now if if i mean there's all levels of irony i think the the nihilism question does entertain a uh a, an ironical interpretation now just to make two points the first is that the secularizing readers of shakespeare will tend to look at these nihilistic moments and say well there you go voila the case closed he's he's a nihilist but 
Shakespeare is always dazzling us and challenging us with multiple perspectives, which is why really he's he's so good for the liberal arts. And at the end of the day, there is an emotional pattern. There's an aversion to evil. There's an admiration for goodness. And these nihilistic turns, the nihilists don't win. They 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 simply do not. That's right. And um, and I think at the at the end of the day, he presents us also with uh, the question of judgment, the vision of judgment. Uh, 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 this framework is available right on the Elizabethan stage mark. You know, they're looking at what they call the heavens, which is kind of the drapery overhead with the cosmos. And they've got the the door, the stage, uh, uh, um, the trap door, which is the hell mouth, they called it. So all of this Shakespearean mimesis uh, takes context from this. It's really a medieval stage, which is given greater fluidity by its its size, its new size in London as the new theaters go up. Uh, so the, the nihilism is always framed by a purposive cosmos and by a hmm. Christian cosmos. Hmm. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You, you referred to Shakespeare's, quote, rhetorical universe, and also to the, quote, Elizabethan language game, uh, which was one that Hobbes and some others were busy exploding, you say. Well, what do you, what do you mean by all that? What was happening there? Well, that's a fascinating bit of intellectual history. And some of that is you have to look at the dates. Hobbes is born a generation or so after Shakespeare. And Hobbes lives a very long life. He's said to have met Galileo. He met Descartes later in his life. And Hobbes is very interested in this new world of science that's emerging with a scientific formula that explained the properties of of physical bodies. A lot of brilliant work is emerging. Uh, But Hobbes at the same time is severely critical of the rhetoricians of Elizabethan England and their way of writing. They're drawing on myth and poetry. He attacks Hobbes. it's people don't often notice this when they read Hobbes, but he's directly directly attacking Sir Philip Sidney's idea of imagination. You know, Sidney likes imagination. He thinks that the poet is a kind of maker in the image of the great maker. And without imagination, Shakespeare had a great storehouse of images in his mind, and the imagination was conceived as a psychological faculty faculty between the body and the soul. So this is a way of generating rhetoric, going to all this storehouse, wonderful storehouse of images. And Hobbes wants to get rid of all this stuff. He says these guys are just full of dogmatic nonsense and and bring in the truth tellers and the mathematicians. And so from my point of view, that marks a change that with a Hobbesian world, the scientific materialistic worldview, that is not the world 
that Shakespeare inhabits. And in that respect, the language game changes. The way of life changes. Yep. What makes A Midsummer Night's Dream a, quote, theological comedy? <laughs> well, um, I th the, the, the great issue there, and I maybe this is a sales point for my book, folks, which is uh, Christian Humanism and Shakespeare, a study in religion and literature uh, from the Catholic University of America Press. Uh, so one of the things that I get into, which I suppose is fairly innovative, is that that play, that wonderful comedy, is influenced by a, a tremendous theological crisis that was breaking out in Oxford and London, which was a controversy over free will. And the, um, the, the, the hardline Calvinists, of course, did not want to admit that human beings had any role to play in terms of their own salvation. And in that way, Luther uh, and Calvin line up. Calvin follows Luther in that particular respect. Um, but the Catholic idea kept creeping back in uh, that, you know, you have some free will. There has to be some participation uh, with the will of God. Thy will be done. But we participate just a little bit. Give us a little window. And this was, the, really, this is the, the, the groundbreaking debate of the Reformation. This is the clash of Martin Luther and Desiderius Erasmus over this very question. And it doesn't go away. So um, you would be accused, even if you were a, you know, a good uh, Church of England attending Puritan, uh, learned, decent Calvinist person, you would be accused of harboring uh, papist sympathies if you showed uh, the least inclination towards the, the free will idea. Now, this is, gets to be so complicated. Um, I, I know there are, we have friends who would say, well, but come on, Hooker in his great work creates a margin for free will within a predestinarian framework. And it's certainly true, although that side of Hooker did not make much of an impact in 1595 the year of A Midsummer Night's Dream. So to come back to Shakespeare, you will recall in that play how the, 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 the fairies sort of make fools of us mortals. Oh, what fools we mortal be, mortals be because they deploy a love juice, a love juice that robs the, the, the three of the, well, robs both of the young men, Demetrius and Lysander. There are four lovers, Demetrius, Lysander, Hermia and Helena, and the juice, love juice gets misapplied uh, by Puck. And so the free will of, of the young men, Demetrius and Lysander, evaporates. And Shakespeare riffs on this question of free will and heresy, and to the audience, it's hilarious because those are the most grueling questions. You know, you could be put in jail if you took the wrong side on that question. And it's part of Shakespeare's mind-blowing genius that, that he gets people to laugh about it, hmm. and he brings it out into the open. He gives them a kind of social safety valve, a release mechanism. Uh, but that's very topical for him in 1595, this great crisis of a free will. Yeah. Good. You've got a great sentence that I came across uh, around the middle of the book. You say, quote, Shakespeare found it dramatically valuable that intelligence is not a moral virtue. 
What do you mean by that? Well, that, I think there you put your finger on one of the most characteristic things in, in, about Shakespeare is his fools. And he, this really distinguishes Shakespeare's writing. Is it, we, we can go back to his sources, and Shakespeare was not generally in the business of writing original tales. Uh, uh, you often, this is not always the case, Midsummer Night's Dream is remarkably original, but often he would go to famous novels that were in Europe or old stories or stories of the Roman emperors, all kinds of things he would draw upon to create his plays. Uh, Where we see him most decisively breaking from his source material is in the creation of his fools. He'll simply bring in fools uh, that have no uh, um, source in source material. So if you take a merchant, the Merchant of Venice, for instance, you have Lancelot. Now, Lancelot is somebody that, that Shakespeare makes up out of whole cloth. And, he, and, 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 and Lancelot's a very important figure, full of folly. The audience loves him, might have a chance to recognize themselves in him, and that would be a wise move on their part. So um, what Shakespeare is sensitive to is that we are fools for Christ, to quote St. Paul that um, we have to relinquish the pretensions of um, our intellectual mastery of the universe in order to find our way to heaven, stumble our way to heaven. And it's in the kind of silly talk, clown talk of the fools and in their inability to parse logic, in their malapropisms and, and abuse of language. You, you often have the sense from those characters that they get at the heart of things, that, that they see the world aright and that, ironically, their vision is not clouded by their intellectual pretension. Hmm. You begin the discussion of the Henry history plays with the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, why, why do you do that? Well, this connects if, as a kind of segue to, to the... the St. Paul and the notion that, that the wisdom of the world is folly in the eyes of, of God. The Sermon on the Mount is really as un-Aristotelian as it gets. If we understand Aristotle as the teacher of, of common sense, of virtues that are geared toward a decent kind of success in our human endeavors on earth, Christ in his sermon has nothing to do with that. He's continually overthrowing worldly expectations and worldly norms. Um, And this creates the storm center, that is the the Sermon on the Mount. It creates a very challenging uh, um, sort of framework for judgment. How do we judge what is wise? How do we judge what is foolish? So it's really this seminal clash between the Sermon on the Mount and and Aristotle. And of course, Luther was very aggravated by this kind of thing. Luther hated Aristotle, thought him very unchristian. So if we follow Aristotelian norms, we'll think wisdom is one thing. If we adhere to the Sermon on the Mount, we'll think that this Aristotelian wisdom is folly and that the fool might speak better to the Christian soul than the Aristotelian wise man. And and so Shakespeare is opening up these problems of judgment for us in the Henriad, which is Richard II, 
and then you get into one Henry the Four and two Henry the Four, and then you get into Henry the Fifth. But that method of challenging and entertaining the audience because they love this stuff, entertaining them with these great moral questions, that's just right at the heart of Shakespearean drama. He loves to play with the audience. Yeah. When the audience was sitting there listening to Hamlet and early on you hear something about Hamlet uh, being linked to uh, Wittenberg, Wittenberg, that would mean something instantly to the audience, wouldn't it? Yeah, and it's funny because that was lost for a long time. There has been, and it's it's kind of petered out now, there was an important turn to religion uh, in Shakespeare studies beginning in the 1980s, 1990s. Stephen Greenblatt was a part of it, an important part of it. Uh, John Cox was an important part of it, where we became much more sensitive to the Reformation context of Hamlet and some of Shakespeare's other work. Uh, and that's exactly right. But for a long time, people were not sensitive to the Reformation context in Hamlet. For instance, uh, you recall, I think it's in Act Four, there's a famous uh, bit where uh, Polonius, poor Polonius, has been stabbed behind the arras and uh, Hamlet leaves his body somewhere, and then he, I think he says to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern that you'll, 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 you'll nose it here below the stairs, and, he's, and he says, well, well where, they say, well, where is it or so? And he talks about a, a diet of worms, as if worms were dieting on the body of Polonius. Uh, now, sure, at the time, that was a you know, great reference, a great historical reference to the diet of worms and the holy... Roman emperor calling the Diet of Worms in the 15, around 1520, I think it was or so. And I think that's where Luther said, or if it's apocryphal, I'm not sure, here I take my stand. So this is a moment of great confrontation in, in uh, the Reformation, and the audience would have lapped it up. They were savvy to this kind of thing. This was lost to the critical tradition for centuries. It was not until Victorian times that the first note enters the edited text of Hamlet that, oh, this is the diet of worms here in Act 4. So you think back to Coleridge and Samuel Johnson and all these great editors, Alexander Pope, they just didn't catch it. Hmm. Hmm. There's much more in the book to, to discuss, uh, talk about Luther, uh, about Ophelia's suicide, uh, many more things, but for now, the book is Christian Humanism in Shakespeare, A Study in Religion and Literature. Professor Ozer, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877 332 2930.